Hello and welcome to another episode of History at Home, a short podcast series that discusses elements of the New South Wales history syllabus for secondary students. Today I'm going to do something a little bit different. Today I'm going to complete a primary source analysis with you. The source we're going to focus on is Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail. What I thought I would do is talk you through how I would analyse this source as a working historian. This is a written source, so by process relates specifically to that type of source. Firstly, I want to identify what type of source it is. As I said, it's a written source. More specifically, it's a written source in the form of a letter. In this case, an open letter. For those of you not familiar with the concept of an open letter, it is a letter addressed to one person or a particular group, but it's published so that everyone can read it. In addition, this is also a primary source. The author of the source is Martin Luther King, and Dr. King addressed the letter to my dear fellow clergy. Clergy are religious leaders. In this case, it was addressed to eight Christian and Jewish religious leaders from Birmingham who had themselves written an open letter to Dr. King criticizing the Birmingham campaign or uh, Project C as it was also known as. The open letter from the clergy was published in the Birmingham News on the 12th of April, 1963. So from this information, we can establish that the audience for Dr. King's open letter were the eight clergymen, plus a wider audience across Birmingham, America, and indeed the world. Dr. King wanted as many people as possible to read this letter. We can also determine that Dr. King's motive for writing the letter was to respond to the criticisms levelled at him and the Birmingham campaign from these clergymen and those who supported their views. The clergyman had called the campaign unwise and untimely. The motive for Dr. King was to rebuke these criticisms and fire off some of his own. This is in fact a war of words that we are reading. So far we have discussed type, author, audience and motive, all key elements of source analysis. Of course, the point of source analysis is to learn as much as we can about the past from a particular source, acting as it does as a piece of evidence. Another key element of source analysis is context. What was happening at the time of the creation of this source? In our case, this letter. One of the fascinating parts of this letter is that it was written by Martin Luther King while he was in jail having been arrested on the 12th of April 1963 for defying the Birmingham authorities' ban on racial protests. This was nine days after the official, official start of the Birmingham campaign against racial segregation, the campaign, as I mentioned, also known as Project C. If you'd like to learn more about the events of the Birmingham campaign in general, you can listen to an accompanying History at Home podcast, titled Birmingham Campaign, 1963, US Civil Rights Movement. So Martin Luther King writes this letter while in jail, in solitary confinement, in fact. He writes it on scraps of toilet paper and newspaper, and he smuggles it out of the jail. This is no mean feat. 
The letter is over 11 pages long. The date of the letter is the 16th of April, 1963, four days into his eight-day jail sentence for illegally protesting. As you can see, before we even begin to read the source itself, we have thought about a number of key elements of source analysis. Each element that we've discussed is going to help us better understand this source. Each element is going to help us determine the value of this source for understanding the past. Those elements again, type, author, audience, motive, context, and date. Before we begin reading some excerpts from this letter, I'll say a few words about it. The response from Martin Luther King in his open letter is a remarkable and powerful exchange of words. In this letter, Dr. King demonstrates his command of language and his ability to persuade. It's one of the great pieces of writing of not only the civil rights movement, but of all time. It is a further example of the power of Martin Luther King to engage his readers and listeners in a dialogue of reason, logic, and thoughtful consideration in the face of bias, prejudice, racism, and weakness. Many a leader has attempted to invoke the tone, the tempo, and the structure of Martin Luther King in composing their own speeches and pieces of persuasive writing. None more so than Barack Obama, the first African-American president of the United States. In his letter, Martin Luther King criticized white moderates for giving their lip service to the civil rights movement, but not being prepared to engage in direct action for the cause. Ironically, this is something that the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee had accused MLK of um, himself during the Freedom Rights. The letter is an iconic statement of principles of direct action based on nonviolent civil disobedience. I'd now like to read some excerpts from MLK's letter from a Birmingham jail and raise some discussion points as we go along. So, from the beginning. Letter from a Birmingham jail, 16th of April, 1963. My dear fellow clergymen, while confined here in the Birmingham city jail, I came across your recent statement calling my present activities unwise and untimely. Seldom do I pause to answer criticism of my work and ideas. If I sought to answer all the criticism that crossed my desk, my secretaries would have little time for anything other than such correspondence in the course of the day, and I would have no time for my constructive work. But since I feel that you are men of genuine goodwill, and that your criticisms are sincerely set forth, I want to try to answer your statement in what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. I think I should indicate why I am here in Birmingham, since you have been influenced by the view which argues that outsiders coming in. I have the honour of serving as president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, an organisation operating in every southern state, with headquarters in Atlanta, Georgia. We have some 85 affiliated organisations across the South, and one of them is the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights. 
Frequently, we share staff, educational and financial resources with our affiliates. Several months ago, the affiliate here in Birmingham asked us to be on call to engage in a non-violent direct action program if such were deemed necessary. We readily consented, and when the hour came, we lived up to our promise. So I, along with several members of my staff, am here because I was invited here. I am here because I have organisational ties here. In this next section I'm going to read, MLK outlines his four key steps to a successful and impactful non-violent direct action campaign. And he says, In any non-violent campaign, there are four basic steps. Collection of the facts to determine whether injustices exist. Negotiation, self-purification, and direct action. We have gone through all of these steps in Birmingham. The four steps mentioned by MLK are interesting to note down. Again, he talks about an evaluation of the situation, attempts at negotiating to create change, self-purification to prepare for the last step, which of course is direct action. MLK continues from here by outlining step one, an evaluation of the situation in Birmingham to determine if injustice exists and to what level. And he says, There can be no gainsaying the fact that racial injustice engulfs this community. Birmingham is probably the most thoroughly segregated city in the United States. Its ugly record of brutality is widely known. Negroes have experienced grossly unjust treatment in the courts. There have been more unsolved bombings of Negro homes and churches in Birmingham than in any other city in the nation. These are the hard, brutal facts of the case. So that's MLK's short summary of injustice in Birmingham. He then moves on to focus on step two, negotiation. On the basis of these conditions, Negro leaders sought to negotiate with the city fathers, but the latter consistently refused to engage in good faith negotiation. Then, last September, came the opportunity to talk with leaders of Birmingham's economic community. In the course of the negotiations, certain promises were made by the merchants, for example, to remove the store's humiliating racial signs. On the basis of these promises, the Reverend Fred Shuttleworth and the leaders of the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights agreed to a moratorium on all demonstrations. As the weeks and months went by, we realised that we were the victims of a broken promise. A few signs, briefly removed, returned. The others remained. As in so many past experiences, our hopes had been blasted, and the shadow of deep disappointment settled upon us. In that section, MLK is informing the clergy who criticised him for undertaking direct action and not negotiating that he and other leaders did, in fact, engage in good faith dialogue with the Birmingham city authorities, business and community leaders. But they were betrayed. They were let down by the lack of action and follow through. Nothing had changed. MLK continues. 
we had no alternative except to prepare for direct action, whereby we would present our very bodies as a means of laying our case before the conscience of the local and the national community. Mindful of the difficulties involved, we decided to undertake a process of purification. We began a series of workshops on nonviolence, and we repeatedly asked ourselves, are you able to accept blows without retaliating? Are you able to endure the ordeal of jail? In this last section, MLK is justifying the move to direct action and outlines step three, self-purification. MLK continues by directly addressing some of the criticisms leveled at him. You may well ask, why direct action? Why sit-ins, marches, and so forth? Isn't negotiation a better path? You are quite right in calling for negotiation. Indeed, this is the very purpose of direct action. Nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and foster such a tension that a community which has constantly refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. It seeks so to dramatize the issue that it can no longer be ignored. My citing the creation of tension as part of the work of the nonviolent register may sound rather shocking, but I must confess that I am not afraid of the word tension. I have earnestly opposed violent tension, but there is a type of constructive nonviolent tension which is necessary for growth. The purpose of our direct action program is to create a situation so crisis-packed that it will inevitably open the door to negotiation. I therefore concur with you in your call for negotiation. Too long has our beloved Southland been bogged down in a tragic effort to live in monologue rather than dialogue. We can see here that MLK is arguing that direct action helps create a more equal environment for negotiations. Not an equal environment, but a more level playing field, because the dominant and power group, that is whites, now have a reason to negotiate in good faith, the tension that he speaks of. They want the process to stop. This is the aim of direct action. MLK then goes on to point out that the history of change is one of struggle, People in power, people in control, don't give up without a fight. He says, my friends, I must say to you that we have not made a single gain in civil rights without determined legal and nonviolent pressure. Lamentably, it is an historical fact that privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. Individuals may see the moral light and voluntarily give up their unjust posture. But, as Renaud Nabur has reminded us, groups tend to be more immoral than individuals. We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given up by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Frankly, I have yet to engage in a direct action campaign 
that was well-timed in the view of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now, I have heard the word, wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. We must come to see, with one of our distinguished jurists, that justice too long delayed is justice denied. We have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights. The nations of Africa and Asia are moving with jet-like speed towards gaining political independence. But we still creep at horse and buggy pace toward gaining a cup of coffee at a lunch counter. Perhaps it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mother, mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you have seen the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. I hope, sirs, you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. You express a great deal of anxiety over our willingness to break laws. This is certainly a legitimate concern. Since we so diligently urge people to obey the Supreme Court's decision of 1954, outlawing segregation in the public schools, at first glance, it may seem rather paradoxical for us consciously to break laws. One may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. This last section of MLK's letter goes to the very heart of nonviolent civil disobedience. It is about disobeying unjust laws and directions in a non-violent, non-confrontational way. This is how the movement highlights the inherent injustice of these immoral laws. This next section is one of my favourite parts of MLK's letter. Here he addresses his comments directly to those clergy, and others like them, who have criticised his actions. He is talking directly to white people who call themselves moderates, who call themselves morally good people, who believe that they are not like the white hate groups and pro-segregationists. MLK fires back with some stinging words about their lack of action, their unwillingness to stand up for what their faith tells them is morally right. And he says, I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's greatest stumbling block in this stride toward freedom 
is not the white citizen's counsellor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. The Negro has many pent-up resentments and latent frustrations, and he must release them. So let him march. Let him make prayer pilgrimages to the city hall. Let him go on freedom rides and try to understand why he must do so. If his repressed emotions are not released in non-violent ways, they will seek expression through violence. This is not a threat, but a fact of history. So I have not said to my people, get rid of your discontent. Rather, I have tried to say that this normal and healthy discontent can be channeled into the creative outlet of nonviolent direct action. In this last section, MLK is pointing out that there is an alternative to his nonviolent direct action. It's an alternative that is represented by violence through the leadership of Uh, people such as Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad of the Nation of Islam. It's represented by the methods of black nationalist groups, such as the Black Panthers. MLK is asking the question, is this what people would prefer? If it's not his way, then it's the alternative that that they will be faced with, because African Americans are no longer willing or able to stay quiet. MLK continues. In spite of my shattered dreams, I came to Birmingham with the hope that the white religious leadership of this community would see the justice of our cause and with deep moral concern would serve as the channel through which our just grievances could reach the power structure. I had hoped that each of you would understand, but again, I have been disappointed. I have heard numerous Southern religious leaders admonish their worshippers to comply with a desegregation decision because it is the law. But I have longed to hear white ministers declare, follow this decree because integration is morally right and because the Negro is your brother. In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churchmen stand on the sideline and mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard many ministers say, those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. And I have watched many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion, which makes a strange, unbiblical distinction between body and soul, between the sacred and the secular. In this section, MLK is calling out the inaction and hypocrisy of the very same white clergyman 
who criticised him in their open letter. Now, in typical MLK style, he ends his letter by extending an olive branch and a gesture of goodwill. He appeals to their common humanity. And he says, I hope this letter finds you strong in the faith. I also hope that circumstances will soon make it possible for me to meet each of you, not as an integrationist or civil rights leader, but as a fellow clergyman and a Christian brother. Let us all hope that the dark clouds of racial prejudice will soon pass away and the deep fog of misunderstanding will be lifted from our fear-drenched communities. And in some not-too-distant tomorrow, the radiant stars of love and brotherhood will shine over our great nation with all their scintillating beauty. Yours for the cause of peace and brotherhood, Martin Luther King Jr. In reading excerpts of this letter with you and making some comments, I have demonstrated the process of the historian in determining meaning from the content of the source. I was extracting meaning from this piece of evidence. This is a highly valuable source for historians in understanding the tensions of the civil rights movement and the thinking of one of the central leadership figures, MLK. It's written from the perspective of Martin Luther King and the protest movement. It gives us a fascinating insight into his thoughts and feelings at the time. As MLK MLK states at the start of the letter, he does not usually directly respond to criticism. So this is a rare opportunity for historians to gain access to his thoughts about those who he opposes. This is a highly valuable source because it's a primary piece of evidence written during one of the most heightened and explosive periods of the civil rights movement. The source is highly reliable as a piece of evidence for the circumstances of the Birmingham campaign and broader civil rights movement. The letter is written by MLK, who was at the centre of the events in Birmingham and is leading the campaign. There is a rawness to this letter resulting from the context of when and how it was written on scraps of newspaper and toilet paper. It was not edited and re-edited. It is raw and emotional in the very nature of its creation, while still demonstrating the thoughtfulness and steadiness of MLK in the face of extreme stress. Valuable sources such as these require careful reading and examination. They require uh, cross-referencing and comparison with other pieces of evidence from the time. Valuable historical evidence such as this are a rich source of information and insight into the period being studied. This is one of my favourite sources of evidence uh, for the US civil rights movement, and in particular in relation to Martin Luther King. It is the context for the creation of this letter that makes it so rare and valuable. I cannot help but believe that the stress and heightened intensity of MLK's arrest and incarceration in Birmingham resulted in a relatively raw and emotional response, giving life, given life in this letter. This moment is perhaps only matched by MLK's I have been to the mountaintop speech that he delivers on the 3rd of April 1968, the day before he is in fact assassinated. In that moment, we also get a rare glimpse of a man facing his own mortality. 
Thank you for joining me today for this look at MLK's letter from a Birmingham jail and a live demonstration of how to analyse a primary source. I look forward to talking with you again for another episode of History at Home.